0: So I'll talk very little about that. I'll talk much more nicely about it than I just did here. <laughs> because, in fact, I actually do really like Please a do. lot of the scholars who are involved in it.
1: But also, we don't want to alienate anyone who's no, interested in it. No, 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 no no,
0: no, 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 yeah. no, 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 no. I'm not going to do that more than I normally do with my personality. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Recorded in our Nerd Haven studios, this is Pop Medieval, your hosts, Dr. Richard Scott Noakes and Nina McIntyre. discussing the intersection of medieval literature and pop culture on a semi-weekly basis. Now, back to your podcast. What, Doc? What, Nina? What happened to you? (laughs) We've been gone for so long, and
0: it's your fault. It is entirely my fault that we have been gone. Uh, Regular (laughs) listeners might know we came back from our summer hiatus. We did our preview episode. We did the one episode on the Rings of Power. Yep. And then...
1: And we were all set to go. We were yes. so ready. And we were yes, so hyped. Yes, we even
0: did the follow-up one, which because of what happened to me, Engineer Mike kept delaying and delaying and delaying getting that out mm-hmm. because we kept thinking I was going to come back. So it's yep. all my fault. And uh, It is. And it is because I tore my retina.
1: In the most badass way possible. I, yes. I will give you that. <laughs> yes. So
0: I, I tore my retina weightlifting. And... <laughs> And anyone who knows my beautiful body knows how absurd that sounds. And yet there you go.
1: (laughs) Okay. So listeners know that doc and I are regular gym rats, especially (laughs) doc. And when I found out that you tore your retina lifting weights, I was gobsmacked. Like I, I had no response to that other than to say doing what, (laughs) like what, what gym activity do I need to avoid to not lose my eyeball, <laughs> to not have my eyeball explode? Now, are you comfortable sharing, you know, some I will, or a lot of details?
0: I'll share all this information. Okay. I'll share everything as I understand sure. it, not as an expert, but knowing a lot more about it than I did before. Please do. So I really am a regular at the gym. I just, I guess genetically... Don't look like I am regular at the gym. <laughs> I'm actually a lot stronger than I look, but that would not explain this. I'm not like, no one would mistake me for a power lifter. That's for sure. Even in the gym, watching me lift people go like, Oh, that old man storming. I would have thought no one's going to be like, look at that guy. Look how swole he is. So I was doing, I was bench pressing and I didn't know mm-hmm. I tore my retina. Basically what happened was I was bench pressing. And when I left the gym, cause it was chest day. I started getting, you know, a lot of floaters in my eye and I didn't understand why mm-hmm. I didn't think anything much of it. And they start increasing as the day went on. And by two o'clock in the afternoon, I completely couldn't see out of my left eye. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know that that was when I had torn my retina. Basically what happened was I had to go get an emergency appointment and with my eye doctor first that, you know, before I met the the doctor, whoever the assistant is there I said like, okay, so, what happened? Like I don't know. Well, when did you notice it today? Well, what'd you do this morning? Anything wrong? I go. Well, I don't know. I got up. I went to the gym. Well, what'd you do at the gym? Well, it's chest <laughs> day, so I did bench presses. That. That's when you did it. So she. So then the eye doctor comes in and she's like, well, "What?" I start going through. She goes, "Oh no, nope. bench pressing. That's what did it." I go to the retina mm-hmm. specialist. I get five times. I told this story. I didn't really know I'd torn my retina. I didn't feel anything. It was just I started seeing some floaters, and everybody was like, "No, that's when you did it." So. I have to go by faith that that is the thing that can do it. So mm-hmm. the reason that that affected us here is that I really for, Oh gosh, two months, really. Uh, now they can actually fix it quite easily. Easily is not the right word. They got to shoot lasers in your eye and all sorts of fun things like that. They could have fixed my eyesight immediately, but that would have meant draining the, humor, the the, the, liquid from inside that eye and replacing with saline. And if you Gross. do that, you're definitely going to get cataracts. But if they can save that mm-hmm. liquid, you're not necessarily going to get cataracts, but it just takes longer to uh, recover. So right. they saved that liquid in there. So, I mean, who knows? I could still have this problem again in six months, and then I'll be right back where I was. But I I really struggled to read because, I, you know, an English professor who can't read out of one eye is a really sad person. And mm-hmm. so I wasn't allowed to go to the gym for, like, gosh, a month, I wasn't allowed to lift more than five pounds. You would be amazed how many things in your life weigh more than five pounds.
1: Just about everything. I mean, from like some laptops are heavier than five pounds. Uh, Children are heavier than five pounds. As you said, just about everything.
0: Yeah. And then for, I think, two months, it was I'm blanking on time now, but uh, I was not able allowed to lift more than 15 pounds. I finally cleared to lift what I want, but. I was, ended up having to use all that normal gym time to go to, the, to work at 5 a.m. because it took me so long to read, to read student mm-hmm. assignments, to read things I had to read otherwise uh, for editing and other things. And so the end result was I just didn't have time to do research for the podcast because I was spending all my time reading. Ironically, because podcasting is one of the few things I could theoretically do without my eye. Right. So that, that slowed me down. But right now my eyesight's probably 95% in that eye. I'm reading at, oh, I'd say 95% my normal rate. I can tell I'm slower than normal. I would say mm-hmm. most people, unless you're literally in my head, you wouldn't know I'm a little slower than normal. So uh, right. so I'm back to being able to go to work at a normal time.
1: How are you at looking at screens, like your, your phone, your
0: computer, all that? I'm fine with all that. At first, they wanted me to limit screen time, not because it was bad for my eye, but because... I needed, my eyes were getting tired more quickly and I needed anything that would mm-hmm. keep my eye, from, my right eye from getting tired quickly. So anyway, it was a weird thing. Uh, the retina specialist said, normally this happens to people who are 10 to 15 years older than me and are diabetic. Uh, none of which describes me, but in any case, you know, I had the benefits of modern medicine, you know, shooting lasers in my eyes and this kind of thing. <laughs> And right. now I'm I'm back on it. I can more or less read well enough to podcast again. Well, to do the research for podcast again. But right. Nina, did you know, you may have known this, that my earliest research had to do with medieval manuscripts that were for medical remedies.
1: I think we touched on that before.
0: Yeah, so I did a lot of research on this, particularly Anglo-Saxon magic and medicine. And there were these things called leech books. They were literally handbooks for physicians. Mm-hmm. And they were the size of something a physician could carry around and they would have all sorts of remedies for eye problems. So there's a lot of mm-hmm. research that's out there on disability studies, just a lot of research in disability studies in medieval literature. It's a very hot subject. There's a lot of great work being done in that uh, right now. I'm not going to pretend to be an expert in that. Uh, my expertise is not generally in disability studies, but I do know a little bit about this idea about remedies for dealing with eye problems. And it wasn't always blindness. In fact, usually it was something Mm -hmm. like bleary-eyed or a sty in the eye or this kind of thing. And so in the 1950s, when scholars were looking at this kind of research, they looked at it and they said, look at all these medieval knuckleheads. They don't know nothing about nothing. This stuff is (sighs) just a bunch of superstition. But fast forward a generation to the 1970s and really 1980s, you start to see scholars who are saying, I don't know. These people were informed by Greek, Roman, and Arab, and Italian schools of medicine. So I think there might be some rationality here. And uh, particularly a guy by the name of ML Cameron in the 1970s, I believe it was, noted that the remedies tended to have things that we know today are antibacterial all sorts of antibacterial qualities to the ingredients. And so he speculated that, well, I'll bet that they did work after all, that it wasn't just a bunch of superstition, that these were effective. And so in mm-hmm. the early 2000s, Michael Drought, who regular listeners to the Pop Medieval podcast will recognize as the author of uh, Drought's Quick and Easy Old English, uh, Michael Drought teamed up with some biologists to actually ask the question, well, did they work? So they took one of the most famous remedies from these books. It was one that had been singled out as, oh, look at how superstitious it is. It has all these elements that are based in archetypes of superstition and magic. But then Cameron had come around and said, no, 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 all these elements are antibacterial elements. And so they took this very famous one and they decided that they were going to actually see if they could use it to inhibit the growth of bacteria. And it was very hard to do because they don't say how many milliliters of this to use. That's not how these (laughs) look. It's like, take some of this and take some of that.
1: They had a Southern way of measuring things. They just dumped a bunch of crap into a bowl and said, here's a recipe. Okay.
0: Yes. And in this case, it would be a brass bowl, uh, also antibacterial, right? So all sorts Mm -hmm. of interesting stuff here. And so they couldn't figure out exactly how to do it. So they, they did all kinds of different Versions of the ingredients, maybe the word meant this, maybe the word meant that, and tried to get them to treat the kind of bacteria that you would commonly find for a sty in the eye, which is in fact what these were for. What they found was interesting. What they found was that, in fact, at some point in the middle of the process, these ingredients would have treated the sty in the eye, but by the time they were done processing it, it had become inefficacious. It wouldn't work anymore. And the conclusions oh, okay. that they drew, yeah, the conclusions that they drew were that the Anglo-Saxon medicine just didn't work that well or didn't work at okay. all. Now I would actually disagree with that. And I feel comfortable doing it in this case because it's something that I have studied a good deal about. Mm-hmm. I'm not quibbling with their their findings. I'm sure their findings are right. But it seems to me a very, very big coincidence that all these antibacterial ingredients, uh, all these things that we recognize as being particularly useful against the bacteria that for a style in the eye would coincidentally be in, in these, these salves that they were making, but that they just didn't work. What I think is more likely is something which is unfortunately unprovable, which is that the normal practice that the leeches would use in the Middle Ages, these physicians, they mm-hmm. understood some ways of the practice that they just didn't mention in the book because everyone knows this is how you do the thing. This is what a normal I amount see. of this is, and this is how you do the thing. And that there's something that we don't know that they would have done it differently because Drought didn't just follow the recipe. They, he, in fact, tried to interpret it all these different ways and do it all these different ways to try to get it to mm-hmm. work out. And so what I think really the truth is, is that there are things about the way they would do it that we ourselves don't know today. But what I would say is that since we can't, we don't know them today. And what I've just said is unprovable. If you need to get your eye fixed, go to a retina specialist like me and get them to shoot laser beams in your (laughs) eyes. Do not, (laughs) do not try these remedies at home. They are not likely to fix your torn retina, no matter how you did it.
1: Agreed, yes. And I can second that as someone who has also had laser beams shot into their eyes to correct their nearsightedness with a lot of success. Please go to a modern doctor, not a medieval (laughs) leech. I have a story too. Have you heard of a medieval king called John of Bohemia?
0: All I know about him is that he was also called John the Blind. I know none of the details of that. Nothing. You're going to tell me everything I need to know.
1: Well, I'm going to tell you all about how he went blind. John of Bohemia, known as John the Blind. A little bit about him. His father was Henry VII, known Holy Roman Emperor. John, King of Bohemia. Bohemia is a region of Europe that is, like, right around Czechoslovakia or the former Czech Republic that was a contested area at the time. During the Hundred Years War, John fought on the side of the French because he was French-raised or French-educated. He did not like the English, so he was very anti-English and unfortunately he died during the Battle of- and I'm going to butcher this because my French is really bad these days, but Battle of Crecy. I think it's it's pronounced during one of his campaigns when he was about 40 years old he contracted a known condition called ophthalmia which is basically just an inflammation it could have been something like like a sty or like pink eye just a general inflammation of the eye I think it had happened in both of his eyes but it got really bad in one eye and he started to lose his vision so he hired a physician a leech as you said, to take a look at his eye and this physician said, Don't worry, your majesty, I will use my best leechcraft and I will cure you of this condition. Well, that was unsuccessful. And unfortunately, he went blind in that eye. So, John did what all kings did at that time and probably for several centuries afterward. He put that poor physician to death by drowning. Which... (laughs) You know, if you're a physician in that time, you better be damn well sure your leechcraft works before you try it on kings. (laughs) Otherwise, you face sudden death. So having lost vision in one eye and slowly losing vision in your other eye, he hired another physician to restore vision in that eye and save vision in the other eye. Well, the second physician said, don't worry, I will go ahead and I will fix both of your eyes. Well, that physician who was from... Avignon, which is a region in France. He was a expert in ophthalmology, you know, eye doctory, as they say. (laughs) He not only failed to cure the king of his blindness, but he also cost the king his vision in the other eye, and so he went blind in both eyes. Now, this physician did not lose his life because, one, he was Pope Clement VI's personal physician, And also because he was fighting on the side of the French. So let that be a lesson. If you are so hubristic that you claim that your leechcraft can cure a king's blindness, make sure that one, you are the Pope's personal physician. And two, you know how to get out of there as quickly as possible.
0: (laughs) Helps to have a powerful patron.
1: This is very true. Very, very true. So that is the story of how poor John of Bohemia became John the Blind.
0: So... I'm very glad to be living in this time of of eye care that I'm living in now. Otherwise, I would currently be blind in one eye, which would be not good. Exactly. So I've got a recommendation for you. I already mentioned Michael Drought's book, but I want to recommend another book. It's by Stephen Pollington, And again, we'll have a link in the show notes. And it's called Leechcraft, Early English Charms, Plant Lore, and Healing. And what I really like about this is I think it's the most accessible book if you don't have a really specialized, you know, library or you're not able to read a bunch of dead languages, uh, I think it's really the most successful book on this out there. So Leechcraft, Early English mm-hmm. Charms, Plant Lore, and Healing. And while I'm here talking about that, I think I should flog a couple of other things. One is I have a... sure. Uh, an article that just came out in BBC Future. I was interviewed for it. I did not write the article, but it's really interesting. It has to do with uh, sword fighting techniques and how we understand sword fighting techniques in the present, just from looking at these medieval manuscripts. It was great fun to be interviewed for it. And in this case, I felt like the writer, she was just really, really good at understanding and breaking these difficult things down for the layman. And so we'll have a link to that BBC Future article next. And finally, the last one I have to flog is I have a book that's coming out and I've been chastised for not flogging my own books enough, so I'm going to try really hard to do it. And that is Beowulf in Comic Books and Popular Culture. should be coming out in early 2023. It won't be out, I think, by the time this podcast drops today. But if you're interested in comic books, popular culture, you know, it is, it's written both to be helpful to medievalists but also I was aware that comic book scholars and other kind of media scholars who might not be, you know, be able to read Beowulf in the original language or might not know what these translations were, that it would, should be accessible to them. So I've tried to write it in a way that's accessible to anyone without sacrificing, getting into some of the weeds of the scholarly stuff. So that's right. Beowulf in comic books and popular culture.
1: Fantastic. Yeah.
0: So Nina, what do you have to recommend to us?
1: Well, I have an announcement since we're talking about self-flagellation and our books. During the time that you were recuperating from your eyeball explosion, I finished my novel that I've been talking about for the last couple of years on this podcast. My new book is finally finished. It's now going to my editor for its final notes and it should be released in early 2023, much like yours. And its title that I'm ready to announce is called... The
0: new title, The Final Title.
1: The Final Title. It's well, had, some
0: earlier titles were stolen by Neil Gaiman and other people. So, Neil yes.
1: Gaiman, st- which, I, yeah, I'll talk about that when the book finally comes out. But yeah, Neil Gaiman stole my title, which is fine. Um, <laughs> but the book title is finally called This Is What You Wanted. So please look out for my book in early 2023. This is what you wanted. I'm very excited about it. Again, it's been a labor of love and trauma for the past 10 years. It'll be my third novel. Please go buy it. It'll be out paperback and ebook and other forms that I will be ready to announce soon. Ooh. So,
0: Ooh, yeah. Mysterious. So yes, I have read excited. 80% of this. I haven't read the last part mm-hmm. that you finished yet. So I can tell the readers it is <laughs> moving and funny and uh, intriguing mm-hmm. and I found myself surprised at points so uh, really Ooh. really quite excellent. I think it is exciting I think it is your best work so far.
1: Well thank you I appreciate that And while it has no medievalism in it, it's very heavily steeped in academia and I I drew on a lot of experiences from my time in college so I'm I'm proud of this again this is a, a lot of blood sweat and tears so to speak. <laughs>
0: Well, excellent. And speaking of blood, sweat, and tears, we will, listeners can take this as the podcast now that my eye is mostly healed up. <laughs> we're coming back. Yes. We have lots of things in the hopper ready to go. We just have to, we, uh, do. we just have to record them. They all got everything I put on pause with my eye yep. explosion. So, mm-hmm. uh, but now, now we're back and ready for action.
1: We are, yes. Fighting shape. Less enthusiasm this time because I I thought I was, I came in a little hot in our first episode and uh, it all fell apart. So
0: (laughs) let's go this time. Okay. Okay. Anything else for the good of the cause, Nina?
1: Yes. Did you get any eye patches while you were recovering?
0: I did not. I was really disappointed. The entire process, at no point did I get an eye patch. I spent a lot of time on Etsy trying to find... Just Mm -hmm. the perfect eye patch for myself. And at no point did I wear an eye patch and it was sad.
1: Yeah, I, I think I found one. I can't remember if it was on Etsy or some other site where it looked really, really cool. But then I saw it was for a child. Like it was way too small and too tiny. And I was like, Doc would never fit in that. Like, I wanted to get you something that you would wear.
0: My head is enormous also, so that's another <laughs> thing. Anything that you think, yeah. maybe this will be too small, it will be too small for my giant noggin. Well,
1: you got a lot of thoughts and a lot of knowledge to carry around in that meat suit. I
0: got a lot of something in there. <laughs> 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 On that note. All right, Doc. <laughs> West through hall, Nina.
1: West through hall, Doc. Pop Medieval was recorded in our Nerd Haven studio. Your hosts are Dr. Richard Scott Noakes and
0: Nina McNamara. Our audio engineer is Engineer Mike. Our music is courtesy of Dr. John Jimmer. For more information, visit our website at profawesome.com slash
1: Or visit our Discord channel using the invite link in the description of this episode. Thank you
0: for listening. I can't remember. Look, time, like everything I see out of my left eye, a blur. So... (laughs)